Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Hi there. I'm Yvonne Moonkun, TMA's Quality Practice Management Consultant and regular contributor to TMA Practice Well podcast. I have spent the entirety of my adult life in healthcare as a registered nurse, counselor, and now a quality consultant with TMA. I am passionate about facilitating a healthy Texas by supporting the physicians who live and serve the communities throughout our amazing state. I hope you find inspiration and guidance in this episode. We're going to be discussing narrowing your options, deciding which practice setting is right for you. To get started, we're going to talk about practice setting and location, determining what you want in that area, um, and then determining what you need with regard to family considerations, finances, extracurricular activities, things of that nature. All of these things are things that you need to consider when you're deciding with regard to your practice setting and location. You want to make sure that there's a demand for your particular specialty, that it's a location that uh, your spouse and children will also appreciate stay uh, being in that area. You want to consider whether there's um, school districts, cost of living, things of that nature that you need to think about. If you have student loans that you're going to need to be repaying and whether there are extracurricular activities that are important to you, all of those things go into deciding where you're going to land. Now, in terms of practice setting, there are several different types. We're going to talk about a solo practice first. There are positives and negatives, pros and cons to both, to all practices, actually, to all, all practice settings. So we're going to discuss those. And the first is the solo practice. On the positive side, the pro, you have total independence, total decision-making autonomy. You can design the practice and the workflows according to your vision. Uh, you have minimal staff to deal with. You're in complete control of your future. It is whatever you decide to make it. And you get the immediate rewards of your, uh, your work. On the con side, you have total independence and decision-making authority. So you have all of the risk and the responsibility. You have all of the administrative responsibilities. You're taking all of the financial risk, things of that nature. You could potentially be more affected by uh, economic or physical factors with a, with a solo practice. With a small group practice, you have the benefit of being with like-minded people. You have few competing interests, because again, you're in the same specialty. You maybe have a, a similar vision, which is why you joined into the small group practice to begin with. You have an active role in governance and deciding how things, how things go. Uh, you share the risk and the overhead with somebody else, with a partner. And you have access to colleagues if you feel the need to consult or something of that nature. On the, on the con side, your, your practice performance is affected by uh, whoever else is there, your colleagues, right? There's less independence. So although you're taking an active role in governance, you still may have to compromise from time to time. You have a shared financial loss. So again, 
if one side of the practice is doing great and the other is not so great, it doesn't, I mean, when you're 50-50 partners, it's, it's a shared loss. There may be less capital and patient volume, depending on um, how much you and your partner are competing for patients, things of that nature. But again, the, the positives and the negatives pretty much equal each other. Large group practices. So your small practices would be 15 and under. So when we're talking about large group practices, we're really talking about practices with 15 physicians or more. On the positive side, the overhead costs uh, and the financial risk is shared by more people. You're paying less in overhead and, and sharing that risk. Um, you have quite a few referral opportunities, particularly if you're in a multi multidisciplinarian group practice. You have clinical synergy, lots of uh, ability to consult with colleagues, and uh, maybe even some more leverage in negotiations. On the negative side, your autonomy and your independence is greatly reduced. You may have far less ability to make decisions, to compromise a little bit more. There may be a, a, a senior partner, junior partner kind of hierarchy that you have to deal with. You may have to join as an employed physician and then enter into partnership later. And then, you know, you're, again, your performance is, is pretty much matched in with everybody else's performance. So if the practice is doing well, everybody does well. If the practice isn't doing well, everybody is struggling. Now, in an employed situation, you can be employed in a group practice, um, in, a, in a hospital system, in a clinic system, something of that nature, an academic sit, uh, setting. There are lots of different areas that physicians may be employed in. The positives of being employed would be the low financial risk. Obviously, you don't have to get a loan to start a business, things of that nature. You don't have that amount of financial risk. You have a predictable income and benefits a lot of times environment might be more structured, know what to expect. A lot of times in an employed situation, you are free of administrative responsibilities, and then your referral network is, is usually pretty good because you're, again, usually in a larger system. The negatives, usually you have no decision-making authority or very little. You have to deal with organizational policies and procedures there may be limited income growth potential. There is oftentimes is maybe less clinical autonomy than you would like. You don't usually get to control the staff or choose your staff, especially if you're in a larger system. There's an HR department, and they, they take care of all of the staffing, and you work with whomever they send to you. Your future is definitely tied to the success of the organization. Um, you may find, especially if you're in a larger system, find that you are tapped to join a committee, have some work on that committee to do. And of course, there's always the option or the potential for acquisitions and mergers. And as an employed physician, you're just kind of in the middle of that. Academic practice is another setting you might choose. You have time for research and there are teaching opportunities. A lot of people find that a re rewarding career choice. You might have some pretty flexible clinical responsibilities. The, on the con side, uh, you might have limited compensation. And then sometimes that, or a lot of times even, that research that you're engaging in is, is funded by grants or things like that. And sometimes you might have a problem maintaining that grant. Now in terms of practice location, 
Texas is definitely one of the better places for physicians to practice. It's in the top five. We appreciate the corporate practice of medicine. Our legislature is very active in maintaining the corporate practice of medicine, making sure that physicians have the ability to maintain decision-making authority um, and ownership in medical practices. It is a small practice-friendly state. There are many smaller practices here that you won't find in other places. Uh, and tort reform many years ago made a huge difference in the amount of malpractice insurance physicians in Texas have to uh, carry, which of course affects your bottom line. When you're considering your practice location, be careful of, uh, of sales pitches. I've got, uh, I've got an ad to read for you. We're recruiting for a position and I think you're a great fit. Uh, you'll love the benefits, great weather in the mountains. You'll be less than one and a half hours from Denver's nightlife and renowned ski slopes. And it's in rural county hospital, Cheyenne, Wyoming. So just be careful that you're making sure that when you're considering your practice location and you're doing your research, that you read all the fine print. And if something feels too good or seems too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. And in these rural settings, to, to their credit, they really are trying to entice physicians to come because there's a shortage there. So kudos for them for making such a good effort. But just do make sure that you're doing your research. In Texas, we have a, a pretty decent cost of living. Our residency retention rate is uh, about 67%. And we have a, a pretty decent tax climate as well as far as um, property taxes and sales taxes. The physician density in Texas is for total active uh, physicians per 100,000 population is 214.6. Our malpractice premium average is just under $5,000, and we have a, a pretty decent Medicare GPCI at 1.01. So still in the vein of practice location, when you're thinking about rural versus urban settings, in rural settings, you may find that you have the ability to have a larger scope of practice because you don't have the, the same number of specialty options available, especially for a primary care physician. You may find that your scope of practice really expands into some of the specialty areas as you're the only physician in town and uh, folks are coming to you for care. If you are if there's negotiations to a facility or a practice in a rural town, you might find that they do a, uh, an income guarantee. It might be larger than you might find in an urban setting, and they will usually request a longer commitment because, again, they, they need physicians so badly in these rural areas. They want you to stay for a good amount of time. In an urban setting, you have state-of-art facilities. You have all of the different specialties at your disposal. You're using the most up-to-date equipment, you know, things of that nature. There will be more competition, and you have to make sure that you're paying attention to the saturation for your specialty. Uh, so you, you definitely want to make sure that you're reviewing the demographics for the area that you're considering. You're going to be preparing your documents, your curriculum vitae, your cover letter, reference list, question list, things of that nature. You're going to identify your um, opportunities. Once you started to narrow down the type of setting and the location you want to be in, then you can start networking with, with your fellow residents, with other physicians you've come in contact with. Uh, you might want to work with a physician recruiter, especially if you're looking out of state. 
they really have a good feel for what's going on in, in the areas that they're recruiting in. You can do website searches, things of that nature. You might want to check with your medical associations, your specialty associations. Consider locum tenens assignments, maybe, if you're still not quite sure exactly. Maybe you've narrowed down a general region of the country, but you're not really sure which setting is right for you. That's a good way to try out a couple of different practice settings without making too much of a long-term commitment. You might be considering fellowship programs, so that's another thing to consider. So the process in general, you start to identify those opportunities, you've gathered your documents together, you start submitting those documents, your CV, your cover letter, participate in uh, phone or video interviews, site visits, um, you do your due, due diligence, make sure that you've really done your research and that you've really asked all your questions, and compare your opportunities so that you make a really great educated decision. Um, this is again not just a professional decision, but it's also a personal decision. We spend more waking hours at work than we do at home. So you want to make sure that it's a good fit for you, that it's a good fit for the long term for you and for your family, and that it allows you enough time to also engage in your personal aspirations. When you're doing your cover letter, okay, always attach your CV. Make sure that your format is brief and structured, it's personalized. Do not address it to whomever may concern. Find out who is going to be receiving your cover letter resume or CV, excuse me, and make sure that you address the letter specifically to that person, dear Mrs., dear Mr., whatever. You want it to be free-flowing. It is not a regurgitation of your CV. It should really explain the, the whys, uh, why you qualified for the position, why are you interested in their organization, and, and how you can meet those needs for them. And when you're applying... Make sure that you're really reading the instructions. Some employers may have very specific uh, formatting requests. They may all want, uh, they may want a, a cover letter. Some may not want a cover letter. They may be very specific about the way you attach the files and send them to, to them electronically. So just make sure that you're really reading through the instructions. The, the worst thing you can do is to not follow the instructions at the very beginning and and that makes a, a pretty large statement to the employer that you're trying to woo. Also, proofread your documents. I can't say that over and over enough. And have somebody else proofread your documents. Our brains have a way of seeing what we want or what we intended to have written there. So, so make sure that you're proofreading. Have somebody else proofread for you before you submit these documents. Your curriculum vitae, or, um, you want to make sure that you're following a consistent format throughout. You want to include your contact information, your education, your professional experience, any licenses and certifications you have. If you've had any uh, professional memberships or awards or honors, you want to make sure you've included those things as well. There may be some other optional information. We'll talk a little bit about that later. But again, you want to proofread your CV and have somebody else proofread it. And then, again, check the website uh, of any organization that you might be applying for to make sure that you've included information that would be pertinent to that organization or relevant to that organization. When it comes time for your interview, you'll probably do a phone interview first. You want to make sure that you have a, a solid connection. So if you're on a cell phone, make sure that you're not going to be traveling through dead zones and things of that nature. Make sure your cell phone is charged sufficiently. If you can if you can uh, do your phone interview on a landline, that's optimal. 
If you're doing video uh, conferencing, interviewing, you want to make sure that you pay attention to your surroundings, that you know what's behind you, that you pay attention to the lighting, and that you have a good internet connection so that you don't have uh, an interruption in the interview. You want to make sure that you've set aside time for that and that you're in a quiet place without interruption. You don't want the kids and the dog to come running through in the background. So things like that. Then once you've gotten past that, you'll be called for an on-site in-person interview. And there may be a couple of those. So you'll want to be prepared for that. Make sure that you're dressed appropriately, business attire, that you're on time a little bit early, not too early, but a little bit early, and that you have your questions with you and your documents and things of that nature. When you're interviewing, you want to make sure that you're actively listening and that you speak slowly. Listening sometimes can be difficult. Active listening can be difficult. If we're nervous, we're thinking about what we're going to say next. Sometimes we don't hear, we don't really hear what the other person is saying or asking us. So, so make sure that you take a deep breath and listen carefully. And then speak slowly. Again, when we get nervous, we tend to speak faster or stumble over our words. So if you concentrate on thinking before you speak and speaking slowly, you'll, you'll sound perfect. You won't sound too slow. You'll want to take things like your CD along with you. Now, you may have sent these ahead of time. It's always good to have an extra few copies with you just in case um, you end up at a, in a panel interview. Maybe everybody doesn't have a copy or they just don't happen to have it on them, something of that nature. Have your reference list available if they ask for that. You want to make sure that you take a calendar with a schedule so that if they say to you, when can you start or can you come back for another interview or something of that nature, you're able to schedule that right away and not let there be a, a, a lag in time. Oh, I'll have to call you. I'm not sure. You don't want to do that. You want to be able to schedule that right away. Some things not to do. Don't be late, but don't be ridiculously early either. About 15 minutes is on time. Anything earlier than that, and you kind of look like a desperado, and they think that you don't manage your time well. Don't lie. That may seem like a no-brainer, but sometimes when you get nervous and somebody asks you a question, puts you on the spot, it can be tempting to tell a little white lie. Be very careful about that. Don't be negative, which was negative. So if somebody asks a question about uh, any of your former experiences, things of that nature, people you've worked with, even if you did have a negative experience, frame it in um, a more practical, positive light as a learning experience, just something that happened, but be very careful about being negative. Employers will feel like if you're negative about previous employers or things of that nature, that you might also bring that to, to your new position. So don't bring up sensitive topics, religion, politics, race, any hot topics in the news, things of that nature. Um, you want to stay away from those things. You don't want to ask about salary. If you have done your research, you have a pretty good idea of what the going rate is for the position you are looking for. If you're interested in federal or state positions, government positions, you can find salary information that's public record on, um, on their websites. And then if you do Google searches for um, salaries in the particular city or town that you're looking in, you can usually find those on salary.com or glassdoor.com, things like that. So you shouldn't have to ask about salary. That will come. But you should have a general idea of what they would be offering before you go in there. And don't feel pressured to accept the first job offer. Know what you're worth 
and make sure that you're that you're deciding on a position that fits you both professionally and personally. It is perfectly fine to say, I'd like to think think about this, or I'd like to speak with my wife or my husband about this before I make a decision. May I, may I get back to you tomorrow? Something of that nature. So when you're thinking about questions that you might want to ask during your interview process, some general questions, uh, how long has the practice or the uh, organization been established? How long has it been in business? Will I have any administrative responsibilities and what will they be? How do we handle call? How is that shared? As far as onboarding is concerned, is there a marketing plan for new physicians? What process is in place for allocating patients to new physicians in the practice? Um, who will manage my credentialing? Um, those are all good questions to think about and ask. The technology, what, what EHR are they using? Do they have an integrated practice management system and electronic medical record system? Do they utilize a patient portal? What are the expectations for you know, your documentation in terms of the technology? Do they have telemedicine capabilities? These might be things you want to ask. And human resources. You want to think about how many physician and do they have non-physician providers in the practice and have how many have left in the last three to five years? Does the practice have a solid support staff or is the turnover high? Will you have dedicated staff or support staff? Will you have your own core group of people to work with? In terms of operations, uh, how many managed care contracts does the practice or the, the organization deal with? Is the billing in-house or is it outsourced? How far is the next available appointment? So how long are people having to wait for appointments? That is a, a pretty good indicator of how bad the need is for a new physician. Does the practice report quality metrics? And is your performance and your compensation linked to those quality metrics in any way? How are overhead expenses uh, shared amongst partners or employed physicians? You want to also ask about, especially if you're going into a smaller group practice, you're going to want to ask about some of their key practice indicators and those benchmarks, things like gross charges. That's the dollars billed to patients, insurance, et cetera. What is their gross collections percentage? You know, it's great if you charge $100 and get $100, but generally speaking, that's not how it goes. So if your contracted rates are $80, are you getting the full $80? Or is there an issue with contract reimbursement and it's lower than that? You want to think about those things. Ask about those things. Your adjusted collections percentage. These are all things that you need to start learning, especially if you're going to go in solo practice or join a smaller group practice. The adjusted collection percentage should be 95% or above. That's just a little hint for you. There are graphs and, and, and statistics and, and different ways that those things might be presented to you. But again, you do have the right to ask about them. People always ask me that when I, when I do these talks in person. Are we allowed to ask for that information? It's just an interview. Yes, if you are joining a small practice, if somebody's talking to you about being a partner in their small practice, you definitely have, it is totally appropriate to ask them for those financial indicators. You want to make sure that you're not joining a sinking ship. You want to look at the, the aged AR percentages. Those categories are like you know, current, which is 0 to 30 days, 31 to 60 days, 61 to 90 days, that kind of thing. That pretty much tells you how well the practice is submitting their claims and, and being reimbursed and how well they're collecting money from their patients and that type of thing. 
when you think about the and ask about the payer mix, it's kind of a, a deal of not wanting to put all your eggs in one basket. So if Blue Cross Blue Shield is 50% of your payers and the practice loses that contract for some reason, then you've just lost 50% of your patients. So you do want to ask about what the payer mix is. Is there a good variety of payers? Um, which is to say that if you lost any single payer, it would be a very small hit. It wouldn't jeopardize the financial health of the practice. Ideally, plans should be 20% or less of collections. Um, it's not uncommon to see some that are a little bit higher than that, but that's, that's a, a really good benchmark is that 20%. All right, when it's time to make your decision, take your time. You've taken all this time to pull your documents together and research the locations and the practice setting and go through the interview process and whatnot. Make sure that you take time to make your decision, that you've gotten all of your questions answered, you've considered all of the offers. And, and when you're considering the offers, it really is, the money itself is important, but there are lots of other things to consider too. And, and so make sure you're, you're looking at the big picture and not just a snapshot. You make sure that you understand employment contracts, that you've had a healthcare attorney review any employment contracts you're considering signing. That's an attorney's part of your support team. And make sure that you stay involved in the process. And that's particularly important if you are in a, a solo practice or an independent practice. You need to make sure that you're involved in every part of the process because, again, when it's a smaller setting like that, you are uh, more at risk for things and you are more responsible for things. More is required of you. So make sure you stay involved, even if you have people that can help you and handle some of that heavy lifting for you. I appreciate your time. I hope you found this helpful. We appreciate you and ask that you like and follow for future episodes. Until then, stay well.